0: Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place.
1: That's our very high intention, that as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a thin place podcast with dr. Larry Taylor well from the outset I have a confession to make I almost skipped this sermon it's one of the perks of having a library of preaching to choose from I can look for those favorite scripture passages on the labels pull that tape and hear something that I want to hear It's sort of what we do in this age of streaming services. We can listen to whatever we like, whenever we like, wherever we like. I started listening to this particular sermon, and midway through the reading of the scripture passage from 1 Kings at the very beginning, I recognized that my mind had wandered to other things that I had going on that day. When I returned my focus to the reading, I quickly began to write off the words as a slurry of ancient names and ancient practices set in ancient times, of which, at least on this day, I was uninterested. I wanted something relevant. I mean, in just a few short days, a presidential election unlike any in my memory was going to take place. And a dusty story from an ancient book didn't seem to fit the bill that day. But then, Dr. Taylor's acknowledgement that First Kings wasn't on anyone's summer reading list drew me in. He was letting me know that my reaction wasn't unique. I imagined there were several people in the room 15 years ago who were feeling the same as I was. It was a subtly brilliant communication tool. He named the elephant in the room and the elephant wasn't first king's it was our assumptions and you know what they say about those once these are out on the table larry then proceeds to open up this story and show us it is our own story so the problem with theocracy
0: a reading from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 2, verses 1 and following. 1 Kings 2. When David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he murdered, avenging in time of peace blood which had been shed in war, and putting innocent blood upon the girdle about my loins and upon the sandals on my feet. Act according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there's also with you Shemai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahamaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, hold him not guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. I suspect that uh, not very many of us have been reading the book of First Kings any time, say, in the last 48 hours. First Kings is just way down the summertime have-to-read list for most of us. After all, it's been a good many years since it was on the bestsellers list. But for sheer fascination, the two books of the kings are a treasure house of memorable stories, and you've just heard one of them. The Bible is an earthy book, and nowhere is this any better illustrated than in these two Old Testament writings. Most biblical scholars today hold to the theory that the books from Deuteronomy to Kings were all written or at least edited by a single writer whom they call the Deuteronomist. We don't know his name, but he probably did his work many centuries after the stories he tells us. The corpus of his writing extends from the conquest of the promised land in Joshua to the exile in Babylon, a period of some 600 years. The continuous narrative of what we have in this material, which includes the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, and First and 2 Kings, all of it held together by the commentary of this one writer, the Deuteronomist. While perhaps only one writer wrote all of this material, he spoke with two very different voices. His narrative voice tells the stories of the history of Israel's kings and tells it warts and all. His theological voice, on the other hand, speaks in lofty, idealistic language. It sounds like the book of Deuteronomy and it can pop up at any point in these writings. Sometimes these two different voices occur back to back, and the effect on us as modern readers is to wonder how two such distinct voices can be heard in the same text. We've heard that this morning. David is the historical figure who looms larger than life in much of this material, this literature. We actually know more about King David than any other figure in the Old Testament. David lived a charmed life. His people worshiped the ground on which he walked. He was the kind of charismatic leader who, when he walked into a room, sucked up all available oxygen. But even so, He couldn't possibly have imagined how he would be idealized by future generations. A coming king like unto David would become the image of a future Messiah among his people. David would be remembered as Israel's ideal king under whom the nation had experienced its golden age. There is no more complex figure in the Old Testament than David. The material on this king is rich and diverse, not always consistent, shot through with apparent contradictions, all rendered necessary in order to capture the broad fullness of his personality. At times, the Old Testament is brutally frank about David's weaknesses, at other times, it romanticizes him as the national hero he was there's little doubt that some of the biblical material is calculated to picture David as the model king. And yet it's to the credit of Scripture that the other side of David the king, the dark side, the tragically human side, is also relentlessly noted. His had been the misuse of power, the arrogance of power in a time when kings were absolute. It was David who first brought greatness to Israel. Israel had wanted a king, even though the ancient ideal had been that Israel was a theocracy. Israel was a nation where God was the king. The earthly king was to be a mere surrogate for God. But David violated that trust. His adultery, his stealing of Uriah's wife, followed by his careful arrangement for Uriah's death, are forthrightly presented in Scripture. His failure in personal relations with his wife and his son Absalom is all in the biblical narrative. I'm afraid that David is largely a negative example for Father's Day. And yet David's people adored him. He was incomparably the greatest figure of his times. He distinguished himself as warrior, statesman, poet, musician, and administrator. He was the forefather of Messiah, and he is forever associated with the Psalms. David was even called a man after God's own heart. In these verses I've read from 1 Kings, David has grown old, He's coming to terms with his mortality because, like all of us, he has no other choice. David is thinking about the future of his people without him. He wants to be sure his son Solomon is ready for the throne. He tells Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Spring, summer, and fall are behind him. David is now the lion in winter. He is, after all, only a man. Kings have no more lock on life than anyone else. The flesh has finally caught up with him, and the terrible rent we all must pay at the end of the day is now coming due. It was with these things in mind that the old king David and his son Solomon, the future king, talked quietly between themselves on this occasion. No longer any pretense, no reason now to keep up appearances, just cut to the chase and say what really matters. Writer Fred Beekner, whom I love to quote, is now nearly 80 years old. He's written 32 books, and he knows his pages are running out. In his most recent book, Speak What We Feel, Buechner takes his title from Shakespeare's King Lear, The Final Scene. In that tragic play at the end, the stage is littered with corpses. There's only Albany left to utter final lines and to bring the curtain down. And Albany says, the weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. And that's what David does in this morning's text. To his beloved son Solomon, into whose hands his kingdom will soon fall, David speaks what he feels. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. It's a fine irony, this first injunction to be strong. David himself had often been weak. He had long since gone the way of all flesh in his weakest moments, and yet he still obviously valued strength. Years before, when Nathan the prophet had challenged King David in a parable that showed him his own injustice and sin, David was brought to his knees in sorrow and repentance. The 51st Psalm, which Debbie read for us earlier, has long been associated with that experience. In that psalm, the poet says, "'Have mercy upon me, O God, "'blot out my transgressions against thee, "'the only have I sinned.'" This is weakness, no doubt. But this is also finally strength, too. And while we'll never know exactly what David meant when he told Solomon to be strong, We cannot discount the strength that finds itself in humility and in weakness before God. David further said to Solomon in what may have been their final meeting together, Show yourself to be a man. Well, the irony continues, doesn't it? David had certainly shown himself to be a man in the best of ways and in the worst of ways. It was surely a man like David about whom Mark Twain said, he is a good man in the worst sense of the term. Show yourself a man. Whatever this may have meant. Isn't it true for all of us that being a man, being a person, translates precisely into the kind of ambivalence we read in David Success and failure, foolish and wise, arrogant and humble, sensitive and ruthless, all come wrapped up in a single package. It's the only venue within which any of us ever show ourselves to be men or women. David's third counsel to his son was, keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways, and keeping his statues. Well, this is pure Deuteronomy. Not long ago, Clyde Fant told the Stetson Pastor School in Florida, never preach anything that doesn't matter. When we're dealing with Old Testament stories about events that happened 3,000 years ago, We have to ask the question, why does this story matter? We're reminded of Harry Emerson Fosdick's comment during the years that he preached at New York City's Riverside Church. Fosdick said that when people come to church, they expect to hear something relevant to their lives today. And he said modern people aren't going to drive all the way across town to hear a sermon about the Jebusites. So why does this story, this text, matter anyway? If the story of David's handing off of power to Solomon ended with these nine verses it might only matter in a minimal way. But already these two paragraphs I've read have very different tones. In the first paragraph, we hear the counsel of David, the model king. He sounds just like the Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. And that's because in these verses, we are hearing the theological voice of the Deuteronomist through the lips of David But then all of a sudden in the next paragraph, the lofty ideal notions of how to rule disappear and David gets down to the nitty gritty of personal revenge and establishing the throne against all rivals. Here in this second paragraph, we find David saying such things as, you know what Joab did to me so don't you let his gray head go down to the grave peacefully. A man after God's own heart. David says to Solomon, You remember Shimei who cursed me with a grievous curse. Now don't you hold him guiltless. You remember to avenge your old father. We hear two very different voices in these two paragraphs. One is the theological voice of the Deuteronomist. And the other, the narrative voice of the historian. One voice is concerned with the role of the king in a theocracy where the king has forgotten that God is actually the king of Israel. That's what usually happens in a theocracy. The other voice is the practical, political reality of raw power. Two very different Davids. One, the ideal king of Deuteronomy, called a man after God's own heart. And the other, David, concerned with revenge and blood guilt and old insults and the establishment of the throne. Here they both are, in the scripture, back to back, the ideal and the real, the stuff of legendary hero worship, flat up against a worldly dose of realpolitik, the practical ways that nations and rulers really operate in the world. And in the rest of this chapter, we have the accounts of Solomon's swift action to eliminate all the people who had been threats his father's power and honor whom David himself had lacked the fortitude to eliminate. In swift succession, Solomon had four men liquidated. Joab, David's powerful general, fled to the temple and claimed sanctuary in the house of the Lord. Solomon murdered him in the temple predating the martyrdom of Thomas A. Becket in the cathedral at Canterbury by more than 2,000 years, immortalized forever in T.S. Eliot's murder in the cathedral. The text of Scripture neither glosses over such palace intrigue as this, nor tidies up the story in a form that we can feel comfortable with. In fact, The last line in this chapter simply underscores the chilling efficiency of what Solomon does at his father's suggestion. It says, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon, and we have to read the bloody hand of Solomon. David had been promised an eternal dynasty with an heir always to sit on his throne. But by the end of the last chapter of Kings, only a poor parody remains of the throne of David with the last king, a mere puppet. And we're left to wonder how the promise of a Messiah from this line of Kings could ever come to pass, especially one who would say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It is everlastingly to the credit of Scripture that it is honest to the facts of history even when they seem to contradict the promises of God. But the Bible refuses to answer all our questions. It leaves us to deal with the messy world of real people. It is untidy and open-ended. This Bible frustrates our love of certainty. For us modern readers, of course, there are issues in this story, or at least it would seem there ought to be. Does the end ever justify the means Where exactly does God stand on violence? Could not God have secured the throne of David without deceit and murder? At what point does the authority of the state engage the authority of God? Where is the line between our obligation to Caesar and our obligation to God? How do the ideal and the world of realpolitik relate? What happens when people start to assume that their slant on government and politics is the same as God's. Sooner or later in a theocracy, someone begins to presume that he speaks for God. Some are even arrogant enough that they attempt to coerce and threaten judges. Such people want to have their way on social issues, all in the name of God, you understand. But in this country, we do not govern by majority opinion on the issues of the moment. We are governed by law, by statute, by a constitution, and a bill of rights. Last Sunday's Town Talk carried an article written by Rabbi James Rudin, in which he said there is a legitimate fear that the United States is becoming a de facto Christian theocracy in which minorities will end up merely being tolerated and where the religious right imposes its beliefs on the whole nation. I don't know about you, but I do not want to live under a government ruled by a bunch of preachers. That's what we see today in Iran. And I got my fill of that 25 years ago in the Southern Baptist Convention. We've grown accustomed to hearing the claim that government does the work of God. Sometimes by violent deeds, the so-called myth of redemptive violence is swirling all around us. Just put God's name on a thing and anything becomes justified. Behind it all, we can still hear the lyrics of the early Bob Dylan song, With God on our side. We're approaching our nation's 229th birthday in a couple of weeks in a time when Americans are increasingly willing to give up the First Amendment with its separation of church and state. At the very least, this ancient story from Scripture might alert us to the dangers of being co-opted by established political structures. This story reminds us that when civil liberties are endangered, Joab can even be murdered in the sanctuary of God. Why, there are actually people today who want to turn our government into a theocracy where God is the ruler and the Old Testament is the rule book and everything is done according to God's law, as interpreted, of course, by them. Thank goodness, every once in a while there is still an enlightened mind and a contrarian voice to sound the alarm. James Dunn, who so capably led the Baptist Joint Committee on Public Affairs in Washington, D.C., for many years is such a voice. And he says, the problem with theocracy is that everyone wants to be Theo. Shall we pray? We thank you, Lord, for our heritage of freedom and liberty as Baptist people, as Christian people, as Americans. We thank you for this country whose birthday soon we will celebrate again. We're thankful for the promise it holds out to people For this marvelous experiment in democracy that we are continuing in accordance with our forefathers. And we pray for our country and for its leaders, for its officials. We pray for the men and women who are preserving peace, defending liberty wherever they are. we ask that you will speak to us again in fresh ways, notifying us of the delicacy, the fragility of the moment, when we are already far down the road toward surrendering the precious principles that Baptists have bled and died for. And we pray that our country's birthday might be an occasion or our rededication to the principles of our faith and the principles of our Constitution and Bill of Rights. We would be your people in ever better, stronger, and more faithful ways. We do not believe that we have arrived. We do not believe that the best insights into what the church is to be and the Christian life is to be have already entered our minds or penetrated our hearts. We do believe the best is yet to come. So help us as people who love freedom, people who love the Lord, people who love our country. Help us to be Christian citizens, to speak the truth as clearly as we understand it and to yield to no one on vital principles that have made life in our country great.
1: In Jesus' name, Amen. Does the end justify the means? Where exactly does God stand on violence? Could not God secure the throne of David without deceit and murder? Where is the line between our obligation to Caesar and our obligation to God? How do the ideal and the world of realpolitik relate? What happens when people start to assume that their slant on government and politics is the same as God's? Sooner or later, in a theocracy someone begins to presume that he speaks for God. The issues modern readers would have with this biblical story that Dr. Taylor named in this series of pointed questions are easily translated to our day. As I record this, the 2020 presidential election is still in the hands of the persons counting the votes. We could easily reword the questions raised by Dr. Taylor that I just read back to you. They easily point to the concerns and anxiety of today's headlines. And the issue I must face is that I can't merely accuse those across the aisle from me of attempting to claim that God is on their side. I feel the same sense of moral superiority in my own view. We all attempt to claim the moral high ground and then defend it with the claim that God is on our side. But did you hear it? A still, small voice in the middle of this sermon. From the stories of power and violence and deceit found in this story of kings and kingdoms, from that very line, a Messiah who came saying, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I'll not preach again here. Dr. Taylor has done a fine job of that. But the work that I have to do is to place myself in this story. I can't merely perch myself above it and observe. I'm here and a part of all this. The biggest problem of our current situation is we've defined it in stark terms of left and right, maps colored in contrasting deep red and deep blue, Democrat or Republican. One of the favorite images I have hanging on the wall of my office was given to me by my wife years ago. It's a print of a political cartoon signed and numbered by Jeff McNally, who worked for the Chicago Tribune. It's hundreds of iterations of the word, them, written in many different fonts and sizes. And they're all arranged to form one word, us. Ultimately, this ancient story is the story of us, all of us. And may we all go and meditate on that reality. And may we bring our faith in a loving God, a God that loves all of us. Not the God that we attempt to speak for, but our faith in the one who speaks to all of us in these coming days. I hope you've all enjoyed this edition of A Thin Place Podcast. If you have any suggestions or comments or ideas, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. It's been wonderful to get your comments and encouragement. The podcast is available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it on your social media platforms so that others might discover these sermons. As always, a special thanks to Larry and Linda Taylor for allowing us to rediscover these sermons in this way on A Thin Place with Larry Taylor. Until next time, grace and peace.